Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Women's Scholars and Professionals podcast. My name is Anne Boyd, and I'll be your host. We at Women's Scholars and Professionals are here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. What does it look like to pursue social justice efforts when one's nature is particularly sensitive? Author Dorcas Cheng Tozen writes about this dynamic in her recent book, Social Justice for the Sensitive Soul, How to Change the World in Quiet Ways. I sat down with Dorcas to talk about the gifts and challenges of being a highly sensitive person and the ways she has learned to embrace her own limitations while continuing to use her strengths to do good in the world. Dorcas offers practical strategies, spiritual encouragement, and historical models for honoring both soul and vision. This conversation will be beneficial both for those who identify as highly sensitive people and those who have sensitive people in their lives. And if you listen to the end of the podcast, I've included a bonus from our conversation where Dorcas talks about a few of the things she has learned about parenting sensitive kids. So let me tell you a little bit more about her. Dorcas Cheng Tozen is a writer and leader whose work with various nonprofits, social enterprises, and faith-based organizations has given her opportunity to engage with a broad range of social issues towards solutions in the areas of homelessness, affordable housing, energy access, youth leadership, HIV-AIDS, and international development. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her social entrepreneur husband and two young sons. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. Well, I'm so excited to talk about your book, Social Justice for the Sensitive Soul. But first, I'd really like to back up for a minute because you have been a writer at The Well for many years, and we have heard bits of your story but I'd love to ask you for more of a narrative arc here um, in our conversation. Could you tell us about your education and your work as an entrepreneur with your husband and your writing and just what you've learned about yourself along the way? Yeah, it's been quite a journey. So I went to school uh, more than two decades ago. <laughs> um, so I got my bachelor's in communication and master's in sociology from Stanford. Mm -hmm. And it was while I was in college that I really developed a love for an interest in social justice. Mm -hmm. And I think simultaneously, I was engaged in my local university chapter. And if you've been part of university, you've done probably the Mark studies. And so while doing the Mark study, I was felt like I was rediscovering Jesus again for the first mm -hmm. time, and seeing him anew through the lens of Jesus was a person who reached out to the marginalized, who cared about injustice, who was trying to right the systems of oppression, um, it, it completely transformed my faith and my professional journey. I had actually wanted to be a journalist when I first entered college. And I think I've sort of come back to that you know, through my writing career. But, but because of all of that, after I finished school, I went into the nonprofit sector, worked uh, for a number of different nonprofits, uh, for almost a decade. And then my husband, when he, we met at Stanford, and then he went back to get his MBA. And while he was there, he started a company called Delight, mm -hmm. which makes solar powered products for families without access to reliable electricity. And, and so as he was starting that, we moved to China to help with the manufacturing and logistics and distribution of the products. And then he had other business partners. One of them went to India to help with sales and marketing and distribution. And then another one moved to China to help us with the engineering. And so we were there for about three and a half years. Um, I worked for the company 
full-time for about a year and then totally burned out because it was extremely intense to, to be working for a startup that was uh, so up and down and so intensive. And then to be living in a foreign country, I'm Chinese American, but China was still very much a foreign country for me. And, and so it was, it was a lot. Um, But after I burned out, I still stayed involved with the company part-time. And, um, and so that's been a lot of my entrepreneurship experience has been following with my husband in this journey that he's been on for about 17 years now. And, and so that was the impetus for my first two books. <laughs> the first one is on how to survive marriage to an entrepreneur. And then the second one is the story of Delight and how it went from being this little school project to now a multinational company that has provided solar power to more than 150 million people around the world. Um, so, so that's been um, a significant part of shaping me. And I think it gave me the courage to pursue a very entrepreneurial track, which was writing. Um, So The Well, I'm super grateful, is one of the first places that I think published me when I was first starting as a writer. And it was super encouraging to work with the different editors that you've had over the years. And, um, And I think writing was a really, certainly it's a powerful form of expression, also connection with others, reflection. And, um, and I think, you know, you asked about what have I learned along the way? I, I think through my writing journey, I was able to process a lot of what I had experienced overseas, what, um, <clears throat> what all of my multiple burnouts meant and where, where it sort of stemmed from and how I needed to live life differently. And so I think that, question of of burnout and engaging in work I love and yet finding at the same time that it was taking this incredible unsustainable toll on me was I think ultimately what led to this current book which is this question of how is it that I can feel called to something um, so deeply in my soul and yet I don't know how to do it in a sustainable way. This is a great uh, a great transition into talking about your book, Social Justice for the Sensitive Soul. And um, I would love for you to begin by helping our listeners who might not be familiar with the term highly sensitive person to know what mm-hmm. that is exactly. Yeah, so highly sensitive person is a term coined by Dr. Elaine Aaron, a psychologist, 30-some years ago. And she, since then, has done a lot of research, and and it's an expanding field, so she is certainly not the only one at this point. But it is to be highly sensitive is to have a particular personality trait that is, for the most part, hardwired into who you are. Most of us are born highly sensitive. And I think put most simply, it's you, your experience of the world of kind of the stimuli that comes your way, the sensory input that comes your way. It's just more intense than your typical non-sensitive person. So noises may seem louder, lights may seem brighter. Um, You, it, it, can also be fairly closely tied with empathy. And so people who are highly sensitive tend to have the ability to kind of sense the the feeling of the room, the vibe of the room, the emotions of other people. They're just really in tune to these tiny little details that are all around us. And because of that, there is uh, sensitive people tend to have a very active inner life. Like our brains are just constantly processing all of the stimuli that we're receiving, which again is more than your typical person. So so there is a lot going on in our brains. We are of course also very deep feelers. So um you know I, I think the the typical idea of what a sensitive person is, right? Someone who who can have their feelings hurt maybe a little bit more easily than the typical person who um who just feels that that pain and that sorrow, but also joy and happiness at a deeper level. Um and and so um related to that, 
highly sensitive people also tend to be very deep processors and deep thinkers. So for individuals who aren't necessarily the type to like, if you're asked a question, you're put on the spot, you're not the kind of person who can immediately respond. You need a little bit more time to prepare, to process, to think, then that is a clue that you are potentially a highly sensitive person. Um, Highly sensitive people also tend to ruminate a lot. If something has happened, good or bad, we just tend to replay it in our minds and think about it over and over again. And so there's a lot of, um, qualities that highly sensitive people have that you can sort of see how that would draw us to social justice work because we have the gift of noticing when things are not quite right, when someone is being left out, when someone is not being treated well. And because we notice it, right, and it really bothers us, we're in tune with our heart and our emotions, and then we want to engage. But at the same time, being highly sensitive, um, the, the hardship and the suffering and the conflict and the deep emotions that come with justice work can also have a really strong impact on us. Yeah. Yeah, that is really well said. And I think you, you know, in the book, you talk about how I think there's this dynamic where you empathize so much with the plight of someone who is suffering that Mm -hmm. then it can, well, it can make it so that it's difficult to actually do the work of practically helping them because we're so caught up in our emotions. I identify as a highly sensitive person too. So this was all very interesting to me. Yes, yes. I mean, secondary trauma is a very very real phenomena. And it's, um, you know, if you're highly sensitive, I think you are more prone to, um, to taking on the, the sadness, the trauma of others and, and having it affect you as well. And so I think that's just something to really be aware of as highly sensitive people, as we move in these spaces where we will encounter people who are really suffering and having a hard time and experiencing grief and sorrow and anger. Yeah. Yeah. So I also want to ask you um, just how you define social justice in your writing. You seem to take, I think, a more expansive view of this concept than some people do. So what would you say, how, how, what kind of parameters do you put on the idea of social justice? Yeah, I think social justice is, the desire and the work toward societies and communities that are more equitable and fair and where um, access is available to everyone, where every individual person's rights and values are are recognized. Um, So yeah, I think that is a relatively broad definition, Um, but I think it's helpful to um to keep things a little bit broad in the sense that um ultimately that I think you know when we think about the kingdom of God it is for every individual person to be recognized as being created in the image of God that they have inherent worth that they are beloved right and and isn't that the bottom line of what justice is, is that people are are treated as such that they're given the opportunities to flourish and pursue their you know god-given gifts and talents and interests um and and so that's i what i would hope that all of us who engage in this kind of work is is the ultimate vision that we're striving for yeah i mean i think there there is an element in which everyone's calling contributes to social justice um, because we're all hoping to contribute to human flourishing and to bringing more of God's kingdom, God's presence um, on earth. Yeah. yeah. So you you started to talk about this a little bit, um, but you write about activism and social justice as not a narrow definition of activities. And you recommend, I think, particularly for highly sensitive people that we find authentic ways to contribute to the world. So can you just talk a little bit more about that, about what what that process is like for the highly sensitive person? Yeah, so I I think, 
the typical picture, right? When we think about social activism, we imagine people marching in the streets and holding press conferences and maybe even, you know, chaining themselves to trees and, and things like that, right? And there is this very kind of confrontational nature to those types of activism. And they're important. They're essential. They have played a huge role in many critical social movements. At the same time, I do feel like that is just one really tiny slice. It's probably the most public facing slice. It's, you know, what tends to get the most attention because of the confrontational and kind of more loud and um, boisterous nature of it. But but there is so much more that that can be done and needs to be done in order to um, truly change our systems that are oppressive, that are unfair, that are discriminatory. And, and so for the highly sensitive person, I think part of it is just not letting yourself be held to those categories or those definitions, to be willing to start with a blank slate and to understand that social justice comes in many forms and it has for many years. So I wanna be clear, I'm not inventing something new. I'm not creating these, these brand new categories that have never existed before. If you look at, you know, I think the civil rights movement is a great example because it's so well documented and we know of so many people who were involved in it. Um, you know, you have your Martin Luther King and your John Lewis and, and all these major figures at the forefront of the movement. And of course, they are absolutely critical to um, to the message getting out, to the changes that happened. And yet for every one Martin Luther King, you had thousands of people behind the scenes doing all kinds of other things. Um, you know, people who were secretaries and small business owners and accountants and artists and administrators, um, relationship builders, networkers, right? Like all those sorts of individuals, I see them as the scaffolding upon which Dr. King and his message could stand, right? So without them, the the ultimate um, vision of the civil rights movement wouldn't have been heard as significantly. It wouldn't have gotten out as much. It wouldn't have reached as many people and um, and sort of reached into so many different systems and organizations and institutions. Um, so, so I think to um, to really be open to. Um, there are so many paths forward, which can be overwhelming, <laughs> but ultimately I think it's good news. Mm-hmm. And, and so in that regard, then to, to feel the freedom to understand who am I, what do I love to do? What brings me joy? I think, you know, there, there can be this mentality within justice work and, and Christians are very much susceptible to this, this sense of, you know, I'm, I'm doing it right only if I am also really, really suffering Hmm. alongside the people who are suffering. And there is something to be said about um, suffering with those who are suffering. Um, At the same time, I don't think it is God's vision for us to be just, you know, burned to dust (laughs) in, in going out and serving him in these meaningful ways. Right. And so what, what is, work activity um that you love that in that you enjoy that energizes you um and that also intersects with the needs and the challenges that we have in our communities and i think if you really sat down and took a look at that and it may be a very long process honestly it may take months it may take years and that's totally fine um but I would imagine that most of us at some point could realize, yeah, there is, there is this great intersection between who I am, what I love to do, what I feel called to do, and what I see are the the felt and important needs of our communities. Well, I think I hear you saying that as a highly sensitive person, uh, one does one can ignore this sense of, oh, I just need to toughen up or I need to kind of uh, get stronger, get harder that there's, there are gifts in being a highly sensitive person that contribute to social justice work that um, are perhaps under the surface and not as visible, but um, 
but that we can kind of fight against that attitude of, oh, get tougher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think for one thing, it's just unrealistic. If you are a highly sensitive person, you're not going to stop being a highly sensitive person. That being said, there are ways to manage, I think, our sensitivities because um, if we if we listened to every, even the tiniest warning bells within our brains of like, oh, this is stretching, this is uncomfortable, I think we would, it would lead us to just retreat more and more and more into isolation. And, um, and really what we need are sensitive people who are willing to take on that challenge to stretch themselves and truly be engaged and be out in the world. I mean, of course, they will also need times to disengage and to rest and recuperate and recover. And that's absolutely essential. Um, but, but so there is a little bit of this balance of, um, you know, uh, Dr. Aaron has this great quote, which I'm going to paraphrase because I can't remember the exact quote, but essentially it's, it's like to, um, if you want to be a sensitive person who enjoys being out in the world and engaging with the world, then you need to be out in the world. (laughs) You know, it's ultimately that, that is what is going to help you be more comfortable. I think like with any skill, right, the more you do it, the more comfortable you're with it, the the less overwhelming and challenging it feels. Um, So, so I think there is that to keep in mind, but at the same time, yes, you're always going to be a sensitive person. And, and so to be able to recognize that, um, that there are wonderful things that you bring to the table, the fact that highly sensitive people just have this intuitive ability to connect with other people, to understand other people, to empathize with others, um, that they have this great attention to detail, again, to seeing like what's off, what's not quite working. And that's not just with with people, but that can be with plans, that can be with organizational strategy. And so um, because, you know, again, they have this gift of noticing, they, they tend to be deep processors and thinkers, um, sensitives can spot things that others may miss. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think to fully embrace those, those gifts that you bring and to not be afraid to, to use them and, and to put them out there, um, even while knowing, of course, that others may not understand or appreciate in the same way. So, so based on what we see in research, highly sensitive people make up somewhere in the range of 15 to 30 percent of the population which is a pretty um big range i think i think uh, social scientists are still trying to narrow that down but um but still i mean that's not that small of of a percentage of the population right so if you say you know one out of every five people you meet is a highly sensitive person then um then that's actually quite a lot of people who who have something really wonderful to contribute. At the same time, one out of every five is still the minority. And so you are going to feel like you're a little bit different. You see things a little bit differently. You operate a little bit differently. And and again, to recognize that that's a good thing because we need that diversity in thinking and approach and emotion to um, enrich our approaches to social change. Hmm. Yeah. You started to talk a a few minutes ago about some people in history and the ways that you've identified historical figures who seem to exhibit the traits of sensitive people. Um, And I loved this um, element of your book. I mean, it's really throughout many, many chapters that you talk about historical figures. So I'm curious to hear the way, how you tuned your attention so that you noticed these character traits. And if there's maybe one person that you would like to highlight for us now? Yeah, so uh, I would say that that was a very imperfect science <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, the the highly sensitive person, um, like our understanding of this trait, again, is relatively new, right? Mm-hmm. So just in the last 30 something years, we have recognized that there are people who are highly sensitive. And so in trying to then apply that to people in history wasn't easy. Um, but but I think there are some key things to look for. You know, people like I, 
uh, I talk about Gandhi as someone who I think pretty clearly was highly sensitive yeah. um, in his own autobiography. He talks about feeling, and but he just used different words for it, right? So he talked about feeling very shy, that it would take him a really long time to figure out what he wanted to say, mm-hmm. that he wasn't good at debates because he, like, if he got put on the spot, he would kind of freeze up and, and not know what to say right away, um, <clears throat> that he had trouble in really big groups that he preferred being in smaller groups right so those are all things clues that point toward yeah he was probably a highly sensitive person that being said I mean we all know that Gandhi really put himself out there and did extraordinarily things that I would imagine were very very challenging for him personally um and yet you know if you really kind of dig into what he did it you um you see these these patterns of you know, Gandhi would spend years at his ashram, meditating, hanging out with people, resting, planning, thinking, and then he would go out and he would do one major social action, you know, mm. like a fast or a march or something, and then he would go back. And and so um, I think, you know, we, we tend to focus a lot on all of these actions that he did, but those actions were done over a number of years. And in between each of those, he had to kind of retreat and take time to rest and recover and figure out what his next steps were. It wasn't just an ongoing boom, 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 you know, steps one through 20, I'm going to change the world. Um, And and so I think in that regard, Gandhi is actually a really helpful model for us. He was something, somebody who engaged in really meaningful ways. He was absolutely a leader that people looked up to and followed and listened to, but he also paced himself mm-hmm. and um, and he, he took the time to rest and to think. And it wasn't this, there is very much this um, this culture within activism today of, of urgency and of everything needs to be done now and done immediately. And I totally understand that sense of urgency because when you see something that's wrong, you just want to make it right as quick as yeah. possible. But we're also human and we can't, you know, that's that's not our, um, that's not how we operate. We we are made to be people who rest and who spend time communing with God and communing with one another and engaging in activities that nourish us and um, and feed us. So um, so Gandhi was definitely somebody who stuck out to me as, yeah, I think I think he was a, a highly sensitive person. Um, Desmond Tutu is another one who um, talks about his you know his feelings were really easily heard and he really preferred to kind of live uh, a little bit more comfortably <laughs> than um than some of his other anti-apartheid um activists and um and again those are kind of all all signs of yeah he was probably a a highly sensitive person there are also a number of folks in the civil rights movement who intentionally did not march because marching just didn't feel true to who they were Mm. and so I think of somebody like James Baldwin the writer Howard Thurman the theologian who played essential roles in the civil rights movement right Mm. so Howard Thurman was Martin Luther King's spiritual advisor James Baldwin Baldwin wrote these incredible books and novels and um and um and yet they did not march because mm. that that just um was not where they felt called to apply their gifts and mm. that that was perfectly fine because we needed them exactly where they ended up yeah yeah you know so much of this journey centers around self-awareness and self-understanding and so I'd love for you to speak to your experience of growth in these areas and, you know, what kind of advice you give to people who wish to grow in understanding themselves. Well, I would say that if you are a highly sensitive person, you sort of already have a leg up in this regard <laughs> because we are deep thinkers. We tend to process everything that happens to us. Um, that is a huge part in in growing in our self-awareness, self-understanding is recognizing 
you know, what happened? How did I respond to that situation? Why did I respond in that way? And is there something that I could do differently next time? Right. Um, highly sensitive people also love to learn. Mm -hmm. So, so that's working in our favor as well. Um, I would say for me, the experience of growing in self-awareness has been very much a cyclical journey, which, which I imagine it is for almost everybody, the sense of, um, you know, usually something, something major will happen. Like I, I will, um, I will burn out or I will go through a major transition, like a job transition or moving or having a child. And that will cause me to pause. Mm. And whether I want to or not, usually it forces me to pause and kind of reconsider who am I? How is this changing me? Um, and, and then there are times when there's just this kind of restlessness within me, this sense of there are questions that I can't figure out, or I just don't feel like I have a good sense of where I need to be or what I'm called to, or what I'm most passionate in this phase in my life, right? Because who we are is a moving target. And so, so I think that's also why this, this journey of self-awareness just never ends because mm -hmm. we are constantly changing and we're kind of trying to uh, play catch up with ourselves as, as we go so that we, we better understand. Um, but I, I have found, I have found the Enneagram to be incredibly helpful. Mm -hmm. I have found um, Myers-Briggs to some degree as well. So, you know, if you're into personality frameworks, those are all great tools. I have learned so much from working with therapists and counselors over the years, from working with spiritual directors and pastors, um, even just having really good friends who are great listeners and who can reflect back to you what you've said, who ask good questions. Those are all ways that you can grow. Of course, reading books, right? Um, HSPs tend to love reading, so... Um, reading books, listening to podcasts. There is, I think we are blessed to be in an age where there are so many resources yeah. available to us to help us understand ourselves. And I think it's about being willing to take the plunge, you know, because mm -hmm. it can be a little bit scary sometimes yeah. to delve into the depths of who we are and to see the good and the bad and the ugly and to be able to come out of that process still accepting and embracing who we are and thanking God for creating us to be who we are um, is it it's a significant process it can take a lot out of you but but I think for you know any of us who have engaged in this it there is so much richness and so much potential when you come out on the other side um, at least for the moment right until your next time of really needing to to reflect um, and, and that sense of like, this is who I am. This is who I'm called to be there. Um, there is just this sense of rightness in that, this, this sense of standing on firm ground mm -hmm. that, um, that is a really wonderful experience. And, and it's a place of, of gratitude and of confidence and of opportunity, I think, because that, um, gives us the ability to, to, not only look inward, but look outward and to see, you know, what's going around on around me and where can I step in to, to meet those needs. Yeah. And you, you've mentioned a, a few, um, a few examples or a, a few ways that I've heard your faith impact your journey um, in understanding yourself, but can you identify, I'm just curious if you can identify a few other ways that you have seen your faith playing a part in your journey of understanding yourself? Oh, gosh. I mean, well, I grew up in the church. Um, I'm a fourth, fifth generation Christian on both sides of my family. And so it's hard to separate my faith from my self-understanding. That being said, I think what has helped me hold it together <laughs> over these decades, because I will, I will be honest that I, I was very much a goody two shoes, um, probably still am, and so <laughs> there was always this idea of 
like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Right. And, and I, I do the right thing. I'm nice to people. I've got it together. And so I think the, the work of God over, especially the last two decades has been, um, just dismantling (laughs) that picture of who I was Mm -hmm. and, really i mean not to say that there isn't goodness in me but there are a lot of other things within me too and and so to um to come to this place of recognizing that i am incredibly imperfect um that there are some significant weaknesses within me um like in terms of character weaknesses, um, morally things that I would really like to work on myself. Um, it's been an incredibly humbling journey. And I think, you know, the, one of the hard things about being highly sensitive is that we are more susceptible to anxiety Mm -hmm. and to depression. So I have struggled with both over the years. Anxiety has been my more constant companion, but depression, pops up every once in a while as well. And I think that without my faith, it would be very easy to just reside in that place of depression and despair. I think also, you know, looking at myself, my imperfections, looking at the state of the world and how absolutely broken it is, right? Those, (laughs) it it just, it, it would be so easy to just despair Mm -hmm. and have that be the end of the story for me. But, um, but for me, recognizing, like truly experiencing God's grace in the midst of my own failings and imperfections um, has gotten me to a place of that, that acceptance of like, of course, I'm going to work on myself, continue to try to be a better version of myself. But in the meantime, no matter where I am, I am still beloved Mm -hmm. and God still sees me. God is still with me. God can still use me and work through me. Um, And, and so that has been incredibly encouraging on my journey. And I think also the, the hope that we find in our faith that we are moving toward a world that will be redeemed one day, you know, we're not quite there yet. We're a really long ways off and I don't know that we will see, you know, I may not see it in my lifetime. We, none of us may see it on this side of heaven. Um, But, but that hope that there, there is, there is something really, really good that we are working toward and we will ultimately get there. You know, Mm. Um, I, I think that that for me is so much of the fuel that keeps me moving forward in wanting to improve myself and wanting to keep putting myself out there, even when it's really hard and I get knocked down and bruised and have anxiety attacks. Um, but, but, you know, I, I am grounded in the Lord and in his love and grace for me and, and in the hope that I have for um, the, the redemption that he has promised us. Yeah. Well, I'm really struck by, you know, in your story and thinking about highly sensitive people and really people everywhere that um, just how much courage is involved, how much courage is required for um, not only taking on social justice work or, or activism, but in pairing that with um, a real deep honest look at your own soul and um what it means to you know to be yourself to be human to be authentic like all of these things take so much courage and it's inspiring to hear your story your your particular way you've gone through it yeah thanks well it is certainly not an easy journey for anybody yeah um, but but i do think that it's an important one and it gets us closer to you know, who, who God intends us to be and, and our kind of strongest, most authentic selves. Yeah. Well, I'd love to turn our conversation just for, um, as, as we're wrapping up, 
to our listeners who are generally women um, in academia, they're maybe not necessarily full-time activists, um, like sure. really many of the people you're you're talking about, you know, you don't have to be a full-time activist, but, um, but each of us has opportunities in life to practice social justice in a way that aligns with our own gifts. So what kinds of suggestions would you give to someone who is curious about exploring new ways to serve the world in academia, mm -hmm. in their own context, um, maybe exploring this idea of um, sensitivity, but also, you know, how to, how to, how to reach out and affect the world in a way that is um, aligned with who they are. Yeah. I think there's so much potential for people in academia. You know, uh, I think even just if you are in a field in which women are underrepresented, in which people of color are underrepresented, um, to ask yourself, what, what role could I play in maybe mentoring others, in supporting others who are coming up in my field? What are ways I could encourage my peers, um, maybe develop a network of, of women or others who... Um, who can really encourage and mentor and support one another because rep representation in these fields absolutely matters. I think no matter what field of academia you're in, that question of how can I, I apply my knowledge and my understanding and the work of, of this particular field toward a, a world that is more fair and more just. Um, we need people who are looking at the world through that lens in every every field. Mm -hmm. um, one, one of my chapters in the book, I, I talk specifically about researchers. I know not everybody in academia does um, research, but but if you do, you know, there there is a significant gap right now between um research that gets published in academic journals and then research that actually reaches the general public, right? Or reaches policymakers and decision makers and CEOs. And so to, you know, think about how could the knowledge and the research in my field affect positive social change, but also how do we get the message out there in, in a way that is um, accessible, to the people who need to hear it, who would benefit from knowing this, who would be able to act on this knowledge. Um, I think if you are a teacher, teachers are incredibly vital, right? There's no question about it in terms of shaping the next generation of leaders. And again, if you bring that, that mindset and that perspective of we need to value every individual person, we need to create systems and processes and institutions that are more fair and equitable and recognize the Imago Dei in every single person, right? To be able to influence your students to also be leaders who think in that regard, that's hugely significant. Um, so, so for women in academia, I would recommend like, just kind of take a moment and look at where you are. You know, where are you situated in, in your institution? What networks are you part of? Who do you know? Um, what what research is happening in your field and um, and just be really observant, like take some time to just see what's going on and to see like, is there some sort of need um, that I could help meet or is there something happening within my circles that I need to let the broader world know about um, and and to just feel free to experiment a little bit, try a little something, beta test, you know, a tiny little group or project or idea and see what happens. Um, and if, you know, you're not ready to do that and you need a few years to figure it out, that's okay too. Um, so, but I, I do really believe that no matter where any of us are, there is an opportunity for us to do something really meaningful and it can be small, and that is perfectly fine. You know, if if a billion people did something really small, that would make a huge difference. Um, so so I think to to give yourself grace and patience, um, but also be willing to to look at the world around you, the context around you with open eyes and and to see what's out there and, and where you might be able to step up. So Dorcas, how what's next for you and how can readers follow you in uh in, in your work? What's on the horizon? 
Yeah, so for me, um, I have the privilege of working for a Christian nonprofit called PAX. So I'm continuing on with PAX. We um, inspire and equip the church to pursue the peace and justice of Jesus. And um, so we do that through programs, through content, um, really especially wanting to support BIPOC Christians who are young adults, Gen Z, millennials. Um, so, so that. That's part of the work that I do. I also, um, speaking of academia, am venturing into my own teaching adventure. So this is hot off the presses. It's just wow. starting in August, um, where I am actually going to be teaching a high school class on social innovation, which is you know using the best of design thinking and business principles and applying that to social challenges in our communities. Um, so I get to work with a group of high school students to look at what is happening here where we live, which is the San Francisco Bay Area, and um, what innovative products, solutions, ideas, programs can we come up with to address some of the significant challenges in our community. So I'm really excited about that, um, but it will definitely be an adventure. It's my first time um, formally teaching in a classroom. <laughs> so I'm trying to follow my own advice on um, taking leaps of faith, trying new things, putting ourselves out there in ways that that feel different and challenging, but I think are also very, um, very hopeful. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that is actually what I'm moving toward. And um, we'll probably have a little bit less time for writing because of that. But I'm certainly still going to be online and I'd love to connect with folks. Um, you can go to my website at changtozen.com and I'm on social media, um, primarily Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at changtozen is my username. Um, so yeah, please connect, follow me. I'll follow you. Um, yeah, I, I love meeting new folks in that way. I really appreciate Dorcas and her encouragement for us to know ourselves, our strengths, and our limits. This feels like important work for all women these days, this task of understanding our boundaries while continuing to add our gifts to God's work in the world. I'm so refreshed by Dorcas's message, and I hope you are too. You can find the link to Dorcas's books, website, and social media handles in the show notes. And if you listen to the end of the credits, you'll get to hear a bonus from our podcast where Dorcas talks about the complex dynamics of being a sensitive parent raising sensitive kids. The Women Scholars and Professionals podcast is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at our website. To ensure others will find and enjoy our podcast as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. And as we close, listen in on this excerpt from my conversation with Dorcas. Yeah, well, if I ever needed evidence that being highly sensitive is an innate trait, then I just need to look at my two kids. <laughs> because they are both highly sensitive. I have two boys aged 11 and 5. And one is more clearly more sensitive than the other, but they both definitely um are somewhere on the spectrum of being highly sensitive you know so for example they both are really sensitive to loud noises um we have only in the past year been able to start enjoying fireworks shows and going to the movies um but before that you know everything was just too loud and too overwhelming for them they don't like big crowds they don't like you know really raucous kind of events um, so, so I think seeing those traits reflected in my kids helps me better understand myself and recognize that, you know, when I was young, I didn't have language for this. I mean, part of it is just my generation that, that we didn't, 
yet know that there were highly sensitive people. I think part of it is culture, and we could talk more about that later, but but I think there are a lot of cultures in which being highly sensitive is not appreciated. <laughs> um, it tends to be seen as a deficiency, and uh, we are encouraged to, to toughen up and to have thicker skin. And so I, I definitely did see it as a shortcoming when I was growing up. And so trying to teach my boys that like, yes, be aware of your sensitivity. There may be some limitations and boundaries that you'll need to set because of that. But at the same time, there's so much beauty and um, goodness in being a sensitive person. And, and I think particularly being boys and who will grow into men who are sensitive, right? That um, That is a potentially kind of category busting um, approach and and so to to teach my kids to embrace that and to love that part of themselves I think has been really important to me as a parent. Um, I think it's also the recognition that uh, and Dr. Erin has done um, studies on this as well and she has a whole book on parenting as a highly sensitive person. But I think the bottom line is that parenting takes a lot out of you. <laughs> I think it takes a lot out of everybody. But for highly sensitive people, because we are just so emotionally invested and we are um, sort of lower energy people to begin with because of all that's going on in our minds and our bodies with everything that we're processing. Um, it's exhausting, especially in the early years when the kids are young. And and I think in, in terms of how that intersects with my journey in social justice, it has forced me to recognize that I can't operate at the same capacity when I have young kids as before I had kids. And to just give myself a lot of grace, like I'm not, um, I mean, going out and marching has always been hard for me. It's especially hard for me now because I just feel like I have such limited emotional energy and and that it is a, a good and godly thing to reserve a lot of that energy for my kids to ensure that they are well loved and well guided, especially in these kind of early years. Um, and, and so I've just had to, there have been trade-offs and, and I've had to, you know, sometimes really pull back on my professional work and my justice work in order to focus on my kids. I think now they're getting to the age where I'm beginning to step back out more, um, which which really feels like a gift. But but I continue to have to find that balance of recognizing that the kids will take a lot of my emotional energy for many more years to come, and and I need to be aware of that as I'm making professional choices moving forward.